Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all. My name is Brody Young. I get to serve on staff here at Calvary. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of Luke. We've been here for quite some time, and we are almost done. Four chapters left. We're almost there. And last we saw Jesus in chapter 19, he had set his face towards Jerusalem, and he was entering into the city. And I can't help but think this morning, with the sun being out, and with spring feeling upon us, and the anticipation of warmer weather and activities, that maybe Easter might be on our minds, and our minds might be set towards Easter, anticipating what we know this journey will take Jesus to. Ultimately, it's leading to the cross. But that's jumping ahead a little bit. We're going to be in Luke chapter 20 today. If you want to open your Bibles, we've got some Bibles in the back if you would like to borrow one. We're also going to have it up here on the slides here. But before we hop in, I want to take just a second and give you a quick update. Is it okay if I take a second just to talk about our student ministry and what our students have been up to? Yeah? Cool, cool. I thought you might say that. We meet Wednesdays and Thursday nights. Middle school and high school have been meeting Wednesday and Thursday nights. And we've dedicated this spring to talking about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's one of our, uh, the parts of our vision here at Calvary. You'll see it over here on the wall, to make disciples, empower leaders, and multiply the church. And so what we did is we said we want to dedicate this spring to talking about this first one. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We talk about it a lot. We use that word a lot. But what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? And we talked about how there's three goals of a disciple. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And so we've been looking at this series. We just finished this recently called Now What? Now what that you're a disciple? What does that look like? And we saw that the only way to experience the life of Jesus is to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, you need to go and see what Jesus did. Who did he talk to? Who did he eat meals with? How did he talk to people? Where did he stay? How did he travel? What was the lifestyle of Jesus? It's been cool to look at a number of interactions that Jesus has had with people along this journey and to see how it's how it's uh, crossed paths with our Sunday service. And as we've gone through Luke and we've seen similar stories of him interacting with people. Last Sunday, we saw a little bit of this lifestyle with Jesus as he's entered Jerusalem in this unexpected way, right? In this unexpected way, he's entered on the back of a donkey. Not the triumphant warrior king that they anticipated, but a prince of peace. And he doesn't stop there. He enters into the temple, and Zach did a great job taking us through this story of these religious leaders in the temple, and they're selling these animal sacrifices, but they're jacking up the prices, right? They've used the temple to serve themselves. And then here comes Jesus entering into the temple, and he reclaims the temple for its intended purpose. It was never intended for man. It was intended a house of worship. Chapter 19 ends with this verse 47. And he was teaching, he being Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. 
Jesus has entered into the city, entered into the temple, and he's cast off the authority of these religious leaders. And he's replaced it with his own authority, teaching daily in the temple. The Messiah has come, and now he's in the temple. The long-awaited one. But the religious leaders, as you can imagine, did not like that very much. I don't know about you, I don't enjoy being called out. I highly doubt that these really influential people within society, these people who had all this knowledge about the law, would have enjoyed being called out. And so it says they set out to destroy him, which is where we pick up our text this morning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 20. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said, Tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? Where do you get off, Jesus? Where do you think you get to do this? Not only do you come and cast us out of the temple, but now you're coming and teaching? Who gives you the right? Who gives you the right? Do you know who we are? And so they ask him, by what authority do you do these things, Jesus? And these men were clever, but they were also wicked. So they didn't really want to know the answer to this question, right? They're really just trying to set a trap for Jesus. They're trying to lay a trap for him with this unanswerable question in order to cause doubt among the crowds that are listening to Jesus in the temple. Where do you get your authority from? Maybe we can trap him. Maybe we can finally get him. Well, Jesus, in his wisdom, responds to their question in three ways, and we're going to see this today in our passage. He's going to firstly ask them a question. He responds to their question with a question of his own in the first few verses. Secondly, we're going to see he tells a parable. He's going to give a story to illustrate the answer to the question they're asking him. And lastly, he's going to quote a prophecy to them that'll be familiar. And in all three, as he asks a question and tells this parable and quotes this prophecy, he's going to accomplish two things. He's going to affirm his own source of authority. Jesus, where does your authority come from? Jesus' authority is the very authority of God. All authority belongs to Jesus. And on the other hand, he's going to call out these religious leaders. He's going to call them out and rebuke them for the sin that they've committed, that they've rejected his authority. Even though they should have bowed and worshipped him because of this authority, they should have submitted to his authority, they have rejected it. And so Jesus begins by responding to their question with a question of his own. He says, well, let me ask you, the baptism of John, is it from heaven or is it from man? What a peculiar question, right? Why does he look back to John the Baptist? It's almost like a kid who's got their hand caught in the cookie jar and they say, yeah, I've got my hand in the cookie jar, but have you seen what John's done? Look over here at John the Baptist. Look at what he's doing. It feels like Jesus is distracting the question away from him, but that's not really what's happening. In fact, Jesus isn't turning the attention away from him. He's focusing the spotlight directly on himself. Because the role of John the Baptist was to prepare 
the message of Jesus, was to prepare the way for Jesus. That's why he came. And John the Baptist said this, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is coming. His kingdom is near. And so here's what Jesus knows when he asks this question. He knows that if they can answer this question about John the Baptist, that they're really answering their own question. Where does your authority come from, Jesus? Well, where does the authority of John the Baptist come from? This message that John the Baptist has been preaching. Where does the authority of that message come from? Well, John's baptism was with the authority of one sent by God, a servant sent by God to prepare the way. And they know this, so they huddle together, and now they've fallen victim to their own trap that they've laid for Jesus. Because now, if they say, well, it comes from heaven, the authority of John is from heaven, then they're hypocrites, right? They've been calling out Jesus and rejecting John the Baptist. They're hypocrites if they answer that it's from heaven. But if they respond that it's just the message of a man, they're fearful they'll be stoned by the people. And so they tuck their tail between their legs and they prepare to sheepishly leave the scene. But before they do, Jesus responds, well, I'm not going to answer your question either since you can't answer my question. But while I've got you here, let me tell you a story. And though he doesn't answer their question directly in this parable that he's going, or in this, this question that he responds to them with, he will answer it in the form of this parable. And he's going to highlight the true answer. Jesus, where does your authority come from? Jesus' authority is the authority of God. So he tells this parable in verse 9. Read it with me. It says, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant also, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. So he sent a third. This one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. May it never be. Jesus begins with the image of a man who plants a vineyard and then goes away to a far country. He leaves. And immediately, the religious leaders would know because they were versed in the law, right? They had all of this knowledge about the law and they know instantly, uh-oh, this parable is about to be about us, isn't it? Because the image of Israel as a vineyard is woven throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Most 
uh, famously in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 3 through 7 that we see for our passage. It says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? Useless grapes. And now I'll tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. Verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The vineyard is the house of Israel. And God has lent out his vineyard to Israel's leaders. He has lent out this land, this nation, to Israel's leaders. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land that's pleasant and where God's been diligent to care for them. He's allowed them to partake and to be blessed by what he has created. And he's led them through hard times across deserts and out of slavery and through oceans. And now into a land of peace. And how have they responded to this authority? What have they done? Well, how has God used this authority? If he's the one who planted the vineyard, if he's really the one who owns the vineyard, how has he used this authority? Well, we see firstly that he's been gracious. He's been so generous and overwhelming abundance in how he's poured out his grace to his people, giving them this land and his care and his protection in a unique way. He's given what's rightly his to the people of Israel. To steward, to care for it. I grew up in what's called the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. And I grew up on this side of this small mountain. We called it a mountain, but it's really like a foothill. I'm sure you're familiar. If you think of Boulder, like the foothill is just not quite as beautiful as the ones here. But I grew up on this hill, and I would look down over the, over the village that was there, because my house sat up at the base of this foothill. And down beneath, there was a church, and there's a town hall, and there's a small park, and maybe about 50 homes. And I would look down over them. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I used to sit up on the top of the hill with a slingshot, and I used to hit the different roofs of the buildings. And so one building had a tin roof. That was my favorite building. And so I sat up, I was like the Grinch, if you've ever seen the Grinch, up overlooking the town. That's pretty much what it was like. And then my heart grew six sizes, so it's all good now. But I lived on the side of this hill, and there was so much exploring to do. I'm sure you're familiar as Colorado people with hiking and fishing and snowshoeing and all the things that you get to do out of nature. But one of the unique things about Vermont that's really special, I think, is that most of the land is privately owned by individuals. Very uh, little of the land is owned by the state. And so what you need to do, if you want to go out and explore, if you wanted to go snowshoeing or hiking or any of those things, what you needed to do was either know the landowner or you had to go meet the landowner. And you had to go ask for their permission and so being in a small town, I would go and I would knock on the person's door. And 
say, hey, my name is Brody, I live over here, this is the street I live on, I would like to use your land for such and such a purpose. And they would normally ask some more questions. Where are your parents? Who are your parents? What do you want to use my land for? And they would almost always, almost always respond with this same line. I wonder if you've heard it. Leave it better than you found it. Every time. The same thing. It got to the point where even I would say it before they could even say it to me. I, I promise I'm going to leave it better than I find it. If I see any trash, I'm going to pick up the trash. If I see anybody doing anything they shouldn't be doing, I'm going to let you know. I'm going to come knock on your door. I'm going to let you know what they were doing. I'm going to leave this better than I found it. And so they would always say, I'll lend you my land, but take care of it. And God has been gracious to lend us what is his, to care for it. In order that we might build it up, bearing good fruit and filling it with the beauty of his creation. To reproduce, to grow the fruit from the vineyard that it was intended to grow. Not to take it. Not to leave it so it can become overgrown and grow wild grapes. God's been gracious with his authority. And man was meant to enhance what is God's and to leave it better than we found it. But instead of being grateful for their blessings and joyfully responding to God how he should have been responded to with worship, these tenants take what's God's. And they rob his messengers, those sent to gather the first fruits of the harvest. They take what's God's and they make it their own. And so we continue in verse 10. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they also wounded and cast out. When the time came to reap the harvest of the vineyard, these servants come to gather the fruit sent by the landowner. And if the tenants are the leaders of Israel, right? These wicked, evil tenants are the leaders of Israel, then who are the servants? We've seen a number of parables throughout the Gospel of Luke And they're almost always filled with some form of of image, right? Not always every character is a specific thing. But in this case, that does seem to be the case, where each character represents a real person. And here, in the last parable we'll see in the book of Luke, these servants are the prophets of the Old Testament, sent by God to the people of Israel. I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus responds to the question, where do you get your authority? By referencing both John the Baptist and the prophet Isaiah. Two messengers sent by God. Men who came to prepare the way for Jesus and to collect God's people. Repent and believe. And one by one, as these messengers were sent, They were rejected, 
And at times, they were cast out, they were wounded, or even killed. Jeremiah 7, 25-26 says this. It's not going to be up here, but I'll read it for you. From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants and prophets to them, day after day. Yet they did not listen or incline their ear. Instead, they stiffened their neck. Elijah was exiled. John the Baptist was beheaded. We don't see it explicitly in Scripture, but history has it that Isaiah was sawn in two. Each of them treated terribly and rejected. Yet, with his authority, with all of his authority, everything belonging to him, the owner of the vineyard continued to show incredible patience in his generosity. Despite their wickedness, he continued to send servant after servant, giving them chance after chance to repent. He continues to send prophets to call Israel to repent. And eventually he says, what should I do? I know. I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And so they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What could possibly lead someone to do such a thing? Because those who have received so much of God's generosity and grace to sidestep their responsibility to steward what belongs to God, what was given to them, and instead to respond with such evil? Could it be that people since the beginning of time have had a tendency to take what's God's and to make it ours? To take what truly belongs to God and to make it our own? And could it be that even today, that this tendency still exists in us to make God's inheritance ours. Catch this next verse in verse 15. It says, What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He'll come and destroy those tenants. And he'll give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, Surely not. May it not be. What does God do with his authority? He's generous in sharing it out of his abundance. He's patient in waiting for his people to come to repentance. But he's also just. He is a just God. And with his authority, he must express justice, right? He must uphold what is good. Those who reject this authority will be cast from his presence. But he'll raise up new leaders because he, again, is patient and generous and willing to share what is his. So he'll raise up new leaders 
full produced the fruit that the original tenants failed to. Jesus has invited you and me to partake in the authority that is rightfully his. He's given us everything. All that we have, all that we are, belongs to the authority of God. And he's worth following. But here's the tension that I think we experience. I think this is where it gets hard, is that we live in a world that makes it difficult to trust authority. We have so much distrust of government and of people who are in high places. Government systems feel shaky. People have moral failures, people we once looked up to and admired. They fail. Parents have failures, which leads to trauma. People leave us. Siblings, friends, those who are closest to us hurt us. Abandonment. Those in authority over us suppress our voices at times. They discount what we have to say. There's no shortage of bad authorities out there. I say behind every man is a great woman. Sadly, sometimes it feels like behind every man is a secret sin. Behind every person and authority is something to be hidden. And so it's not always natural for us to submit to authority. It doesn't come naturally to us. In fact, it's incredibly uncomfortable in many cases. We want to live life on our own standards. We want to be comfortable. We want to be the God of our own destiny. But Jesus isn't shaky. Jesus doesn't leave or forsake you. He will never fail. He will accomplish his purposes. He is trustworthy. He is generous and he is patient. And he is just with his authority. And you say, that's all fine and good. But you're preaching to the choir, man. I put my trust in Jesus a long time ago. And I've been coming to church far longer than you. I've been sitting in this same chair in this same church. I put my trust in him. What else do you want from me? But I think this is where it gets a little tricky because our submission, our obedience, our worship to the authority of Jesus isn't just a one-time decision that we make. It's a day-by-day, moment-by-moment worship and reliance on Jesus. Because our moral compass is constantly being impacted and formed by the world around us. By the world that we live in, by the voices that we hear, the things that we laugh at, the people we admire. And I wonder, where is the voice of God by which we hear his authority in the world today? We may not have prophets coming to tell us to repent. We may not have prophets coming to say, Jesus is coming, this kingdom is coming. Telling us how to live 
how to follow Jesus. But we have something even the religious leaders themselves did not have with all of their knowledge of the Old Testament law, all of their knowledge of the culture of Jewish history. We have the complete word of God, which so often sits dormant on our bookshelves. We have the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell with his people, never to leave us, to remain with us forever, every moment of your life, carrying you, leading you, speaking to you. We have communities of people filled with years, if not decades, of wisdom, following after Jesus in the same world that we are trying to be faithful in. And so often, they sit dormant. If we were to merely ask, you raise your children so how do you do that? What does that look like? Where do you find the time to read the Bible with your kids? You're so thoughtful in how you use your money and your energy and your time. You're so thoughtful in the businesses and the things that you choose to support. Where did you learn to do that? I think this decision is what's best for my family, for my career but who can I ask to pray for this decision? Who can I ask to come around me and to speak life into these hard moments? So often, it feels like we're willing to submit almost everything. All authority belongs to Jesus. Just don't talk to me about how I use my money or how I raise my kids. Don't talk to me about what I should do with my career. But I'd love to talk with you about the weather or a sports team. So often, these few things, we don't submit to the authority of Jesus. And we rarely come to seek the counsel of others. How God speaks into our lives So often, we don't submit to his care, but our whole being belongs to God. Every breath that you take, every meal that you eat, what you put into your body, every decision you make should bow to the glorious and trustworthy authority of Jesus. He is the authority. But when we treat life as our own, when we go moment by moment thinking about the next meal I need, the next place I need to be, the next thing I need to do, without ever stopping to pause and to offer it to God. When we treat life like it's our own, we steal God's authority. We take what's his and we make it ours. But he continues to be generous and patient with us. And so how should we respond to this magnificent, all-powerful authority of Jesus? How should we respond? I want to submit that we have two options. 
We can reject this authority, or we can trust it. We can reject this authority, or we can trust it. And it's not, again, a one-time decision. It's moment by moment. What does it look like for me to intentionally submit to Jesus, moment by moment, walking with him Well, it takes discipline. It takes incredible intentionality. Living life on my own standards does not take that kind of intentionality. I can just think about the next thing, go from one thing to the next. But building in moments to trust in Jesus and to say, Lord, get me to school, get me to work safely today. Help me to trust in you. Help me to not get angry at somebody on my way there. That takes diligence. That takes thoughtfulness. So we have two options. Submit or reject. Every moment. It's a battle. A final thing Jesus does in response to the question about his authority is he's going to quote this prophecy from Psalm 118.22. In verse 17, He quotes that prophecy. It says, What then is this that is written, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And again, the religious leaders must have paused recognizing this psalm that Jesus is quoting. Because the crowds quoted this very psalm to Jesus as he marched into the city on a donkey just a few verses earlier. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. He is the beloved son. But anyone who stumbles over him is going to be broken. Anyone who's prevented from the truth because they can't get past Jesus being the authority will be broken. It will be useless in the end. And he will crush all that get in the way. His kingdom is coming. So everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And if it falls on anyone, it'll crush him. His kingdom will crush Anyone who tries to get in the way, it is coming. It's a just kingdom. I recently found out that I love puzzles. Do any of you like puzzles? This is a new love for me. I didn't realize that I liked them. But I sat down with a group of friends, and over the course of a week, we put together this awesome puzzle. It was all made of wood. It was the coolest puzzle I'd ever seen. And if you've ever done a puzzle, you know the frustration of looking over all the pieces over and over and over and over again, looking for the one piece that you can't seem to find, which just happens to be the only piece that you need for this place in the puzzle. Maybe you even give up and come back the next day thinking, I'll need fresh eyes to come back to this puzzle. But the piece that was thrown away was really the piece that they needed. They'd cast it out. 
tossed it into the trash. This useless stone has become the cornerstone. It's the one they needed all along. The one that had been relegated as useless has become everything. It is the foundation. Jesus holds all things together with his power and authority. Replace the cornerstone of a house and the whole thing comes crumbling down. So how do we respond to this majesty and authority Jesus. Reject it or worship it. Make it nothing or make it everything. The foundation of Jesus' authority is worth trusting in. What has he done with his authority? He's given us everything. So what will we do with the authority that Jesus has given on to us? What what will you do with what Jesus has entrusted to you? Will you submit to his voice as you care for what he's given you? This is the challenge this week. By the grace of God, we can cling to Jesus and worship him the way he deserves. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the generosity that you show us each and every day. Every breath, each new morning, you've given us everything. Not just in this life, but in the life of your son. God, we pray for the strength of your spirit this week to respond to your authority with humility and with awe. God, that we would render unto you what belongs to you. And so God, give us delight to walk with you this week and to render unto you what is yours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.